0: Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. All right, let me apologize right off the bat. I'm coming at you live from the Tempe Public Library today. So uh, I apologize for any any audio quality issues and I apologize for any background noise. But uh, you know, I'm down in the valley for a couple of days of consecutive meetings and you know, the show must go on. So we work where we can work. Let's see, coming off a weekend of just so much fun. We, along with Arizona backcountry hunters and anglers, held our annual family squirrel camp. Uh, we did this up at the base of Mormon Mountain on our public lands uh, near Flagstaff. And, and, you know, I just, I couldn't of I couldn't have imagined a better weekend. We had wildlife professionals there. We had students there. We had a foreign exchange students working on a North American model uh, wildlife Conservation Project, um, we had we had press there. We had a bunch of families and individuals that were there to to hunt, to learn, to have great conversations around the campfire, and boy did we do it all. Uh, all hunters were successful in harvesting aberts and pine squirrels and also band pigeons. We were in a really great spot. Most hunters got them as well. So it was just, it was a fantastic uh, weekend. We had some wonderful food, some wonderful conversations. If you, if you didn't make it this year, please consider joining us next year as we would love to have you. And it's a great time, I guarantee it. Let's see, about today's program. Um, I wanna go ahead and throw it out there. It's a bit con- con- controversial. Uh, we are talking about management of feral horses in Arizona and the problems that occur. And you know, if you're a horse lover, um, I, this is, I, I apologize. I do not want to be offensive to anyone, but unfortunately, when you're talking about the management of these animals on our landscape, uh, lethal means are part of that. So please approach this episode with an open mind. I hope you learned something and, and I hope you can appreciate it for what it is. So with that disclaimer, let's jump into our uh, project and volunteer announcements from our great uh, conservation organizations here in the state of Arizona. All right, let's see. First up, we have registration for the January Becoming an Outdoors Woman. Our BOW program is open. If you don't know what this is, I would encourage you to go back and listen to a podcast we did on Becoming an Outdoors Woman. Um, It'll explain everything to you. Uh, This is a dynamic and absolutely fun uh, event. And, you know, I've got to visit two of these camps. I got to teach small game processing and cooking at one. And it's, it's just, it's an inspiration. Um, there's you know, 100 gals of these things. The energy is just up there. You can feel it, everybody's happy, everybody's having a great time. So this is gonna be January 20th through the 22nd uh, in Oracle at Triangle Y. It says all women ages 18 and up are welcome, no experience necessary. If you already have outdoor experience, that's great. There's still always more to learn and more fun to be had about space is limited they're not joking about that all of these fill up so please register today i'll have a link down below for that next up the arizona elk society october 21st through the 23rd says help us restore elk habitat the arizona Elk society is in need of volunteers to help set up camp cook serve work on project tear down and clean up camp this is a follow-up to work that on an ongoing habitat project at long valley meadow and will entail building a large rock structure and replacing a willow enclosure the majority or all of this work uh, could be finished up in one day with a small group of volunteers but they plan on staying until sunday morning sounds like a good opportunity to hang out and uh, you know have some camaraderie the arizona elk society will provide the kitchen food drinks long sleeve shirts gloves and safety glasses for the project please consider bringing rain gear, and all the necessary personal camping equipment you may need. Please let them know as soon as possible uh, so they can have time to plan accordingly. And I'll have a link below for that. Then, uh, Be Outdoors Arizona. Be Outdoors Arizona is interviewing for board members. This is an opportunity to be a founding member of an organization that will positively affect the lives of our youth and increase their involvement and the stewardship of our lands to ensure the availability of outdoor recreation for the future. Learn more at beoutdoorsarizona.org or call Kara Jensen at 602-309-2517. Last but not least, Valley of Sun Quail Forever on October 21st, they're having a no dog, no problem hunt, half day morning hunt in northern Northern Phoenix area. It's just a morning hunt, it's not a camp. Um, it's an opportunity for you to get out. And, and go try to harvest some quail uh, this month. And um, you know, a lot of people have the misconception uh, uh, is that if you need a dog to hunt quail, that, that's not the case. I, I have a, a wonderful dog, Edward, a German Short-haired Pointer, and he's pretty great. And I enjoy hunting with him. But you know, I kind of think I probably killed just as many birds as I did before I had Edward. And that was just because I went out there and burnt a lot of boot leather and good habitat. And you know, it's hunting with a dog. It's fun, but it's not necessary. This is your opportunity to get out there and see how it works. So again, look in the show notes for links to all of this. And I really hope you enjoy this show today. I hope you learn a thing or two and uh, get a better understanding of the issue with feral horses here in Arizona. See you after the show. here we are. I am sitting here with Bob Valey and John Colazar. I say those right? Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: Bob, can you introduce yourself? Um, I'm Bob Valey. Um, I'm a retired uh, with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, also past uh, biologist for the U.S. Forest Service and certainly worked on the Apache Segraves National Forest and the Prescott National Forest along with research with for the Forest Service. Um, currently, I've been serving on the um, Arizona Wildlife Federation is a region one director in the White Mountains, and also the National Wildlife Federation representative for AWF. Awesome. How about you, John? My uh, name is John Colazar. I've been an Arizona
2: resident for 36 years, so I'm relatively a newcomer still. Mm-hmm. Um, very actively involved in conservation efforts. I've been a member or a board member for most of the groups. I've fortunately been able to avoid the sheep bug But past president for the Arizona Deer Association, I was president for eight years there. Arizona Sports and Wildlife Conservation, I was president for a couple years there. Arizona um, Big Game Super Raffle for the last six years, I've been president and still am. All
0: right. Well, I'll I'll go ahead and cut right to the chase. We're here to talk about a very controversial problem we have here in Arizona, and, and that's the issue of feral horses. Um, so I, I want to assume that we're talking to folks here that have no idea about this, mm-hmm. um, and, and have no idea about these horses, their impact on the landscape, their impact on wildlife, none of it. So, so let's start with, you, you hear people talk about wild horses, you hear people talk about feral horses. Can you define those two, two terms for me?
2: Yes, um, in 1971, Congress passed the American Wild Horse and Burrow Act, in which specific territories were designated as wild horse territories. Those horses are all protected under the Wild Horse and Burrow Act and are designated as wild horses. Um, since that time, horses have become more populous, particularly in Arizona, and it started in 2001, was the first release, when we had the Rodeo Chettisky fire, uh, south of Forest Lakes, Heber, Overgarden, that country, all the way to SHOLO. With that fire, there came Uh, all the fences with the bordering White Mountain Apache tribal lands came down. And for a period of five years, you couldn't repair them because each winter deadfalls would just knock them over again. With the aerial seeding that we did in the Apache sick portion of that forest, the sick portion, it became like a candy store for wildlife. I mean, there was just food everywhere in the bottoms of canyons. A lot of the nuked areas up on top stayed that way, but the, the bottom areas became candy stores. Right. Horses
0: came over in droves from the White Mountain Apache tribal lands okay. and state. Now, did, did those reservations, did they have any regulations regarding feral horses on their properties? Uh, they have no regulations per se. Okay.
2: And it's not just the White Mountain Apache tribal lands that are having issues. Uh, the Wallapi, the Navajo in particular, the Navajo have over 90,000 uh, horses on their reservation. They recognize it as a huge issue. There are no figures from the White Mountain Apache tribal lands, but they were offered to receive back the feral livestock that they found on the Apache portion of the forest as well as the horses that they found. And they rejected the offer for the horses, but they kept the cattle.
1: Okay. All right.
2: Now, so Heber in 1973, they the Forest Service for the Apache Sitgreaves found seven horses in the Heber area. So the Sitgreaves portion, which is the Sitgreaves portion of the Apache Sitgreaves in Heber, was designated as 19,000 acres was set aside as wild horse territory. On the Apache side of the forest, there were no horses, no wild horses found at that time, and so there was no designation. Now, go forward to 2011 when we had the Wallow Fire, After the Wallow fire, the same fences came down on the east side of the Apache tribal lands, and hundreds of horses came over. Those horses are still there today, and that's what's being removed. Because there is no designation as a wild horse territory, they receive the designation of unregulated or feral livestock. Okay. Uh, On on the sick portion, all of those horses are designated as wild horses. They will be removed as soon as the uh, management plan comes forward, and that plan has been in, in the works since 2007 when a federal judge declared that they had to have a plan before they could remove any. Since that time, the horse population numbers have ballooned, and our guesstimate right now is between 1,500 and 2,000 horses on the sick greaves portion alone. Wow. wow, The
0: Apache side has 1,200. Okay, all right. All right, so getting right to it you know this is a controversial subject so I don't I don't want to dance around that uh, but Bob can you kind of spell out for us where, where does this controversy come from
1: well it, it started pretty much with the uh, you know the management plan that was required as John referred to in Heber because in 1973 the Forest Service did find seven horses that were unclaimed unbranded and under the act, if any animals were found there, then the forest or the public land management agency, including the BLM, was supposed to set up and designate a formal horse territory. And with that, they were required to set up a management plan. <clears throat> so that was that goes back to 1973, and uh, I was on the I came to the forest in 1978, and at, at that time. They were start. They hadn't developed a management plan, uh, but they were starting to see an increase of horses horses beyond the seven that they had originally done a survey with, mm-hmm. and so they started to remove uh, some of the horses. And unfortunately, what happened was that the, advocate, the horse advocates did not want to see that happened they didn't want to see any horses removed until the forest service actually developed and implemented a a management plan for that heber wild horse territory of 19,000 acres as john mentioned but because of a lot of on other ongoing things timber programs range programs and then certainly all the way up until 2001 with the rodeo Chittosky fire a management plan still hadn't been developed then we saw an influx, great influx of horses on the sick grave side, and then with the Wallow fire, another big influx after the boundary fences were damaged. Mm-hmm. Consequently, then the ABRS in, in 19, 2018 and 2019 developed a collaborative Hebrew wild horse um, working group that um, gathered folks from the Forest Service, Arizona Game and Fish Department, the livestock industry, uh, horse advocates, um, Arizona State was the uh, the person, uh, kind of the uh, moderator facilitator, yeah. moderator for that pro- program. So we started. The purpose of that, the, the Forest Service wanted this collaborative group to develop some recommendations for the Forest Service to develop this Heber Wild Horse Working Group management or the uh, the management plan for the forest. Mm-hmm. We spent about a year, every month. Uh, meeting, uh, field trips involved, going out and looking at the 19,000 acre and then beyond that and trying to get an estimate of what what was needed from this territory standpoint. Long story short, we provided recommendations, including the recommendation of looking at forage capacity. What could this 19,000 acre territory produce and sustain over time for horses a certain capacity for horse numbers the numbers that were that came up with around 50 to 104 so to date, uh, that plan is still in a draft plan. Arizona Wildlife Federation provided extensive comments and recommendations on supporting the plan and certainly wanted to see the plan implemented. To date, the plan still has not been implemented or or finalized. I recently contacted the forest and they're not anticipating that until this winter. So consequently, the horses have the capability to double their populations every five years. Oh, wow. So overall this long time since way back in 1973, the two big fires that John mentioned, mm-hmm. the influx of horses from the reservation, we've seen you know some significant increases of horse populations across, pretty much across the forest now. I live in Pinetop, Arizona, uh, I was just on an archery hunt, and I just saw a band of horses in a place I would have never dreamed seeing it. And then they were unclaimed, unbranded horses. I've seen them on the Pine Top Lakeside Golf Course, so we've got them from Heber all the way across to Alpine, Springerville, and even on Clifton District wow. right now. All right. So uh, just
0: for the sake of this, let me, let me define a couple of terms. And exotic is one. And exotic is a species that does not belong in a landscape. Um, and it's I want to be careful how I put this because we did have wild horses in the Pleistocene. They went extinct on their own, uh, no influence of, of human. Then we brought horses back over from Europe. Conquistadors. Yep, yep, Spanish. Um, and now they're on the landscape again, but they're, they're an exotic species. They're not a native species to our continent at this point. Correct. Um, Invasive, invasive, yeah, an invasive species can sometimes even be a native species, but in whatever case, whether it be exotic or native, an invasive species is a species that has a, a negative impact on the habitat and, and affects other species that belong there. So horses at this point are exotic, in fact, and invasive, in fact. Why, why are we concerned about these animals being on the landscape?
1: Well one of the I mean certainly the 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 main impact is that without population control or population management certainly they require forage they require water and so they're competing, certainly, with permitted livestock in some cases where you know, livestock permittees are paying, you know, grazing fees, for example, on public lands. And they feel like they're being impacted by this uncontrolled population of horses. Certainly wildlife in terms of what John mentioned, elk, deer, antelope, uh, you know, and that's just that's just a major big, like big game species, let alone small species. What they're also having, we well documented to see the impacts, particularly in some of the real sensitive habitats, such as riparian and streams. Mm -hmm. We have an example of that going on in the Alpine Ranger District on the Apache Sipgraves National Forest right now, where I worked as a biologist uh, back in the 80s. We were trying to do stream improvements for. Uh, the Arizona or Apache trout, which was at that time listed as a threatened species, there was a recovery plan. That's the uh, Arizona state fish, as a matter of fact. So it's only endemic and we're only found here in the White Mountains. Well, unfortunately, where the a lot of the tribal horses have come across, they're direct directly impacting. Three key streams, for example, on the Alpine District, Center Fire Creek, Boggy Creek, and Wildcat Creek, which were part of the recovery plan for the Apache trout. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, there's also a, a federally endangered species called the New Mexico Meadow Jumping Mouse that requires very healthy riparian conditions, stream conditions for its survival. And that's also being se- severely impacted through, you know, reduction of the herbage or forage, or not forage, I want to say grass cover, for example, riparian plants, and also the trampling of the streams, which is reduced water quality, increased water temperature, so it's impacting trout, it's impacting this particular small non-game species as well as big game, and then particularly in drought situations like we're facing pretty much here in the Southwest, when you have limited water availability during drought conditions, horses um, consume uh, you know the, the, the biggest quantity is far as uh, versus livestock or versus elk so they can be there's going to be a lot of cont- competition for that that uh, water resource and they can be very territorial at a water resource so there's a, the competition of displacement of wild animals and even livestock in some cases i mean cattle for example with A group of horses that are um, you know roaming free that have not um, you know pretty well territorial about those kind of things yeah
0: yeah Um, so so it's not that we're sitting here just just as a group of fellows that don't like horses of course not I love horses I think they're gorgeous but uh, we also like an intact healthy ecosystem most definitely a host of, of native wildlife and this is not just elk and deer and sheep being well, out-competed. It's, it's not frogs. just wildlife.
1: It's primarily it's the habitats, habitat. The, the stream conditions, the riparian conditions, the upland condition, and the watershed conditions. I see. That's what relates to everything as far as, you know, what. all these all these animals we've discussed as far as horses, wild, you know, wild animals and also livestock, they're dependent on healthy habitat conditions, and that's the main driver right now. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat>
0: So, yeah, I just, I want to be clear about that. This is uh, this is not an anti-horse thing. This is a, uh, this is a habitat protection thing. Most definitely. Um, and in these horses, they do have a severe impact on, on, the habitat. On any They're very they nomadic.
2: They and, and the method in which the physiology of a horse, when they clamp down and be, bite grass, they pull it out. They tug it out by those incisors and they rip it out with the roots. Mm-hmm. That lays claim to open spaces after they pummel an area. That's where your invasive weeds come in. Yeah. And that's what's happened in numerous areas, which is why there's a nomadic existence now with these horses all across the sickreaves portion of the forest. They've destroyed habitat, and invasive species have grown in, and none of it is productive. Now, if you want to talk about numbers, you know the, the amount of signage that you see of horses versus deer versus elk, uh, phenomenal reductions over a 20-year period that I've studied intently because I started writing about the problem with horses in 2004. And in that 18 years since that time, the forest has flipped. There are more horses now by far, and the only time, if you're going to look for elk or deer, you look in canyons because the horses won't go to the bottoms of the canyons. All that fertile ground on top has been pummeled and eaten away by the horses, and they don't like going off of cliffs. Elk, on the other hand, they thrive in bottoms of canyons because it's cooler down there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's a, it's a major problem. Um, I don't suspect that it. here's the question. If you are an educated, biological-sensed person, you can understand the complications that the the excess number of animals will present. You can't buy a pizza for eight people every year and then have that change yearly to 12, 14, 18, 24, and expect to still feed that with one pizza. Mm. It just doesn't work right and that's the problem so you have biological reasoning and science supporting the removal of these animals just like we do every other animal and then you have the emotional impact that the uh, advocates have and I admire their passion I'm passionate about all wildlife they are specific only to
0: equines yeah I follow you all right so what are what are some ways that we could get a handle on this let's let's pretend that we didn't have any you know there was no controversy we didn't have any constraints uh what what are methods of, of controlling these populations
1: well um, certainly uh i think people got to at least accept that their population needs to be controlled that's the first thing
0: right and, and i fully expect you know for lack of a better way to put it um, many of these to end up in, with dead horses I, I i see that as a reasonable and viable way forward
1: um, so basically what, I, what I'm doing Well, when I, I mention population control, that wow. doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have dead horses, but okay. they've got to realize that we may need to remove some of the horses either through capture and sale of horses okay. or adoption of horses, some of those kind of programs that are ongoing on some of the areas here in the West. But I, th- I think the biggest concern is that uh, there is... I think some of the activists feel that there's plenty of space out there. There's there's no competition going on. There's no impacts, mm-hmm. and I think uh, we really need. I think they need to really educate themselves to come and see what some of the impacts are, and maybe get a better feel that uh, that horses do have impacts, and particularly when the numbers are way beyond what the capacity of the land is. Mm-hmm. One of the other things I wanted to mention too is in terms of not just the forage consumption, but things when Arizona is pretty limited on its number of rivers and streams and certainly water here in Arizona. So water quality, water quantity is really important. And for, for example, the three streams that I mentioned before, they're in very sensitive soil areas. The riparian vegetation is really dependent, is really necessary to keep stream banks stable uh the riparian shrubs and trees that grow along the the streams and and small creeks or seeps is really important for shading and keeping those waters cool for example all the aquatic species and particularly trout that depend on low water temperatures and all the aquatic insects and everything else that 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 riparian vegetation is they're dependent upon so uh and then the Horses and and elk and and even cattle have a tendency when you've got an adequate water source, you've got lush forage down in a stream bottom or a creek bottom, they have a tendency to camp there. And unfortunately, if 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 they're not moved, you know, for example, uh, you know, livestock people have the opportunity to to at least herd their animals out of a, a sensitive riparian area when they do their pasture moves. Elk typically don't camp all day long there, but typically seen where horses have all the resources that they need, they'll they'll typically camp there, and they have... As we all know, they have large hooves, and boy, if you have a sensitive soil area and vegetation area, they can really do trampling Absolutely damage. Absolutely they can, yeah. And they no, can break I've down stream areas. banks that are important for undercut banks mm-hmm. for trout, and then what happens is the stream start to widen. As it widens, and the, the water depth shallows, mm-hmm. and then the water temperatures go up, and now they become inhabitable for some of the aquatic insects yeah. or for, for some of the fish. And, and
0: I would add, <clears throat> when you couple that with with a historic level drought um it just expands uh, absolutely the issue um i'm going
2: to disagree with mr bailey just for a moment um you asked the question and it's probably a a very critical question do animals need to die a dog is man's best friend correct dogs and cats are humane i mean animals that we put into our homes that we share our homes with we Mm -hmm. love and adore and each year we put down millions of them yeah. because of excess populations. Um, until there's a balance that's achieved on the landscape, there is going to be a necessity to remove some horses lethally. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really hard to say about such a beautiful animal. But I, I consider elk beautiful, antelope beautiful, deer beautiful, buffalo beautiful in their majestic size. Yeah, All animals have to die in some way, shape, or form. Are they consumptive? Well, let's look at it this way. Every little child who goes to a zoo sees the lions and the tigers, mm-hmm. and yet in the United States, every single zoo is required to feed their big cats horse meat because cows aren't healthy for their digestive system. He intends to America, you might want to think about eating horse meat rather than cattle, but I'm not saying that to the cattle ranchers. But so where do we get our food for all the big cats? The United States is required to import them from Canada or European countries because we do not have a site in the state in the United States to lethally put down horses and to make what they call horse logs, which are what we feed the big cats all across the United States with. Right. Find a solution
0: without killing something. You can't. That that was my thinking, and I realize you know just using the term "dead horses" is it, it's it's a big of a, a trigger point for a lot of people. Sure. Um, and I don't mean to be crass. Uh, and and I don't mean to hurt feelings, but the truth is there. And I'm not talking about mowing down horses and leaving them lay. They're, there's there's ways we can utilize this as a resource. Yes, um, right. And the problem, the thing is, the horses have to go, uh, yeah. one way or the other, if, until they we achieve a balance Continue to, or yeah. Um, but yeah, if we want to maintain healthy ecosystems in our state, a state that I dearly love, I'm literally, I live here. I I moved here. I'm raising my family here because of these, these diverse ecosystems, these diverse habitats, this wonderful wildlife, and all this public land, it's literally why I'm here. And, and I, I don't want to sit back and watch it destroyed. If you would like to
2: do yourself a favor, and I would encourage everyone if who lives in the Phoenix area Go out to the Salt River area where they find all these accolades about the Salt River wild horses and then take a look at the landscape there. I've taken photos that you see on one side of the fence and on the other. It is a nuclear area. There is no food left. They have 400 horses and 19,000 acres. If it were not for forced feeding that they have to do, there would be starving horses all year long. We have been blessed and fortunate with the last two years of great monsoon seasons. Mm -hmm. But sooner or later, we're going to hit a bad year. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, there's going to be a lot of dead animals. And it's on the hands of the advocates because they refuse to remove them.
0: Okay. So uh, back to methods of control, um, You know, I hear chatter about sterilization programs. Is there room for that? Does that work?
2: PZP works. That's what they're using on the mares. Yeah. You know, but it's a, and here's the problem. It's a two, one, you have to do it two years in a row. They then come into season monthly, which drives all the stallions crazy for a longer period of time because they're constantly trying to mount the mares and trying to maintain their
1: band uh, status. Um, And it's costly. Very costly. And not very realistic in terms of having to retrap the animals all the time, okay. particularly in a any kind of situation. You, I mean, manpower intensive, um, financially very expensive. So it's it's really, it sounds like a great program to, to, to implement. Mm-hmm. But overall, when you're trying to, to manage a large population of horses and reduce the numbers, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's almost impossible in a lot of cases, okay. in my mind. Please correct me if I'm
0: wrong, uh, but the the agencies that are charged with with managing these lands, the BLM and the Forest Service, mm-hmm. this this problem, this issue falls in their on their shoulders. Correct?
2: I think it falls more mostly on the politicians' shoulders. Okay. Um, the Salt River horses were going to be removed in 2015, but a small group of vocal people complained all the way up the food chain in terms of politicians i talked to you know at that time matt salmon was the representative for my district and he he clamored for not to remove the horses and he had a picture of the you know fighting horses in the salt river and i said what is are you crazy and he said john their votes yeah and that no. is People don't do the right thing. They're not doing the right thing environmentally or biologically for the land. They're doing it based on emotion and votes. Yeah. And quite frankly, the politicians, you know, Neil Bosworth is was the forest supervisor for the tonneau all the way from the top of the food chain, which at that time was President Obama, all the way down. They received all these calls. Don't remove these horses. They're beautiful. They've been there forever. Don't And it stopped. How a federal agency bowed to the state of Arizona legislators for, to allow an excess number of animals on the landscape is beyond me to this day, but it's there. And that's a travesty for the environment and nobody to blame, but the, obviously the, the advocates, I understand, but the politicians not doing the right thing, that's a voting issue.
1: And to your question, Michael, I, the Forest Service certainly is, they are responsible for habitat and, and carrying of the land and habitat resources. So certainly, Uh, That's the reason, for example, when when they issue permits for livestock grazing, they're responsible for ensuring that that habitat is managed so they control the permitted numbers and certainly evaluate whether cattle, for example, are having an impact on habitat. If there is such, then... Permit reductions are certainly in order. Mm-hmm. They work closely with the Game and Fish Department. The Game and Fish Department oversees wildlife populations here in Arizona. And if, for example, if uh, elk populations appear to be having impacts on the land, when I was wor- working with the Region 1 Department portion of the Arizona Game and Fish Department, we monitored habitat conditions in conjunction with the Forest Service to see what kind of impacts uh, elk were having we were establishing exclosures so you could tell the difference between if it was if it, they were called elk ex- or at least livestock right. enclosures yeah. to exclude livestock so it, the impacts within the exclosure would only be elk related most for example and we would use monitoring cages to evaluate what kind of forage uh, consumption there was and if we were seeing impacts then we increase the permit numbers to reduce the population. For example, of elk. In the case of horses here, and it's the same kind of thing. Their their numbers are going to have to be controlled also. If you know monitoring and John has got some very graphic pictures of what's going on. For example, on the Salt River in terms of the forage impacts there with fence line contrast showing one side of the fence where healthy grasses are a good lush grasses are on one side and the other side it's almost bare soil so you know there's impacts going on there and so uh, it's really important that this whole population issue needs to be addressed
0: well let me hit you gentlemen with because there's going to be people listening to this podcast and and they're they're going to you know be telling themselves their own one-liners and their own questions in their head and we can't answer those um, and some of these might even seem a little silly, but these are the questions are, are the comments and questions I hear from from the advocate side of the horse issue. Um, one is uh, horses are native to North America.
2: They're not. Never have been. I mean, they were brought over by the Spanish conquistadors and there's no question of that. Mm-hmm. There was something that resembled a horse that was here in the paleo era, but they died out and they haven't been here in. Thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Horses have been brought over since the 1500s. That's it.
0: They are not native, period, end of game. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. But I think there's somehow making a connection between what's here now and what was here in the Pleistocene. Um, and I don't understand the connection either. Um, they did go extinct on their own. Um, and in bringing over a different species, a horse is a horse, but a different species of horse species. here um, does, does not constitute, in my opinion, a native animal, nope. But so then there's. Let's see. Uh, what are some other questions that I, I, I get from? They're not. Them? They're. They're not hurting anybody. It doesn't cost anybody anything. That's I get that a lot. And then they can. They can adapt and, and co-habitat with with wildlife, native wildlife.
2: I've seen them drive turkeys off of water holes under dire circumstances. They are absolute bullies on water holes, and a stallion's job solely is to provide for his band of horses. And anything that is not part of his band gets driven off. And it can be, I mean, I've had to fire shots into the air to stop a stallion from charging me because I was walking up to a waterhole to see if there were other tracks other than simply horses. You see the stud piles where they mark their territory and their domain. And literally the forest is covered now, I would say, 80% of all droppings that you see in a national forest, particularly the Apache or the sick graves, it's horse droppings. There's nothing else left. That's dominance by a single species. You can't have single species adulation for the price of every other wildlife. The Arizona Game and Fish Department had been held in check by the governor's office for a period of seven years, but finally now that Governor Ducey's on his way out, they are starting to stand firm and say, hey, this is wrong, we need to have these removed. And Governor Ducey was one of the biggest horse advocates, and he told everybody to stand down. That's common knowledge within circles.
1: Well, certainly the horses that were brought here were domesticated and you know if you release or they escape they're going to go quote-unquote wild mm-hmm. but to attribute to them to you know equalize them with wildlife that have to make it on their own throughout the throughout the year through all conditions and habitat situations drought etc. and to understand for example that the horse advocates you know want to carry forth supplemental feeding programs Veterinary programs, that type of thing, seems a little um, ironic to me. If if you really want to look at it and call these wild, free-roaming horses, uh, it just it doesn't equate to me when you're and if you're not and you're unwilling to really. Uh, try to control populations at all and no matter what the method is whether it's lethal or capture adoption program that type of thing there's one other thing too and we're, we've talked
2: briefly about it the supply of water mm-hmm. um, as president of the big game super raffle each year we brought in you know over a half a million dollar average now for 16 years we're at, we're almost at 10 million dollars that we put Almost all of that has been put towards sourcing up waters. A water catchment, which we put out there on the forest floor in designated territories, typically runs anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000. We have put out hundreds of those. The horse aftabists don't do anything. They don't put out water catchments. I mean, that, that's beyond their thought realm. They just simply view it as a government freebie that, well, they should have the water. You know who drug all those dirt tanks? Those were cattle ranchers who, they went from doing it as a profit business to a hobbyist to abandoning their allotment in the Hebrew area. That guy's gone because there is no more possibility of him raising cattle in that. Yet all those dirt tanks, all those pastures, all those fence lines that he put in, it's all gone. Do you think the horse advocates would want to pasture horses and put in fence lines at $15,000 a mile to do it? That's beyond their comprehension because they haven't been brought into the game. And that, that's the irritating sources, is that we have paid dearly, financially, hours, time, energy, passion, all to supporting all forms of wildlife. And one single species is destroying everything that we have in Arizona,
0: and that's a travesty. Yeah. Well, let, let me give you one more. Um, and, I mean, heck, I've already, I've already made the horse people mad. I might as well make the cattle people mad too, which is really not my intention. But a comment that I hear often is, hey, we've already got cattle out there. You know, cattle are having, you know, they, they do have an impact on riparian areas and, and, and water sources. And I realize that, you know, oh, heck, there's the whole cows, cows are condos, and I'll, I'll take cows every day over condos. But it, it is a comment that comes up. Um, I realize that, that cattle ranching and, and running cattle on our public lands is part of our history as a nation. It's been around for a long time. But what what do you say to these folks? Well, well they
2: call them the welfare, welfare ranchers, and that just irritates me to no end because I know of no organization that works as hard, no single you know, uh, um, trade, if you will. People who run cattle, it's not a high profit margin. They work their butts off. They're in the saddle early, and they they move their cattle all over the place. There is range monitoring reports that have to be filled out. They have expectations. They have to transfer them. They have to move them from pasture to pasture so that the forage is adequate, and they pay a fee for that, and they're feeding people. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference between the horses who are just simply escaping from tribal lands and encroaching on national forests and chewing their way through all we have. And every other species is reduced annually through lethal means, whether it's through market or it's through hunting, it's reduced. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Horses, there are no reductions currently, and that's the travesty.
1: Yeah, and with their population potential, that's that's what we're really concerned with. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got to implement some kind of population control method soon or things are going to get worse. And Nevada is a typical example. If you look at some of what's going on on BLM lands in Nevada, they're being overwhelmed with trying to manage horse populations in that state, for example. And that, I think that's what we're trying to prevent here in Arizona where we, you know, there's certainly, there's, <clears throat> for example, the Heber Wild Horse Territory was set up for a particular purpose. We've come up with a capacity that can support that type of thing. But until you know, until we have, <clears throat> you know, uh, situations where, uh, you know, uh, we can't, ma- and where we can't manage populations, you know, that's, I think that's what worries most of the land managers, game managers, sportsmen, and everything else is that we've got to have, we've got to start addressing that as a factor that's affecting both livestock permittees, wildlife people, and, and certainly the bottom line habitat conditions and water resources.
2: So. And by the way, you know, currently as we're having this meeting, There are sales going on in Holbrook, and there are online sales for these horses that have been captured off of the Apache's portion of the forest. Mm -hmm. For $200 to $300, you can get a magnificent horse that you can turn into a trail horse. Uh, I have seen videos by the contractor, Jackie Hughes, who is capturing these horses. They took a horse off of the Apache forest that had never been handled, and in five days they were riding it. Wow. But wow. it takes a. there's a process. She has one. It, it's magnificent uh-huh. the way it works. But that contractor loves horses. She has her own horses. She l- loves cowboys. It's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have any pleasure in having to put down an animal that's blind or that has a broken leg. But that's a fact of life. C- nature is cruel. And naming horses and calling bands families does not negate the fact that that's wild out there. And there are other critters that need to survive just as much as horses.
0: So there's this program of, of capturing these, these animals and selling them. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, is that a win on the advocate side? Is that something that they're okay with? No, they're screaming bloody murder because we're destroying the family unit. That's interesting. I'm struggling with that because to me, it seems like if, if I was a horse advocate, um, a- and I was a person that cared about these natural systems in our, in our state, that sounds like a win-win for me. I, I, you're
2: talking logic versus emotion. You're talking biology versus emotion and you can't break that barrier with the horse advocates, period.
0: That's uh yeah, that, that's, that's, that's disturbing, honestly. Um, because, trust me <laughs> uh, it would be nice you know it, here, here we are firmly on this side of the issue and these folks are over here and the lord knows there's enough partisan and ship in our country these days anyway are there any reasonable conversations that are are bridging that though that that gap no
2: none no, they do not want a single horse removed. They, their big claim to um, negotiation is, is that they will come up. They believe there's only 400 horses on the Apache side, which is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And they said that let us use PZP. We'll do it for free and maintain the horse herd size as they are. It's not going to happen because they're destroying the riparian areas. You know, Trout Unlimited, the Center for Biological Diversity. Bless Robin Silver's whole soul. Till the day I die, I'm so thrilled I met that man because he is a force to be reckoned with, and he recognizes what's right biologically. Mm -hmm. And he sat at the same table with cattlemen and with sportsmen and himself. Now, you want to talk about the unholy trinity? Robin Silver, the Center for Biological Diversity, cattle ranchers and sportsmen. They've never sat at the same table and agreed on anything, but we did on horses.
0: Yeah, that's, that, that's very interesting to me because, quite honestly, I, I can, I, I'm i very much a, a die-in-the-wool hunter. I mean, I hunt and I fly fish. That's how I identify. But quite honestly, before those, I consider myself a naturalist first. So it's always frustrated me that, you know, sometimes we refer to the greens and the browns, that being consumptive and non-consumptive and all of this this terms. I struggle with personally because I don't like it I consider myself both of these things Um, and it it bothers me greatly that environmental groups and conservation groups that are really working for 90% of the same stuff you know really butt heads over ten and they don't work together but to see you know Center for Biological Diversity and Arizona Sports and Wildlife Conservation working together and and with the cattlemen that to me I love seeing that but also that, that that there is, is solid evidence that this is a very big issue well um, when you when you have like, all
2: three of those groups combined saying something's wrong something's wrong something's wrong yeah it's something's deadly wrong yeah. and, and and it's all for the myth that is pre- preponderantly coming out of the east the the citizens against equine slaughter the head of that sits in her home in oregon she's not from arizona uh, there's a group called how uh i think it's wow or something like that out of new mexico they they came down to holbrook today demanding to see the horses didn't wear wasn't aware that you couldn't see them that you had to view for them online um the people who filed suit in june in june uh citizen the uh citizen or I i can't anyhow they're based out of uh south dakota and nebraska they came down her, she had 997 head of horses removed from her authorization because they were starving them to death. She didn't know how to manage them. Mm-hmm. But they filed suit under allegations that these were, you know, that they shouldn't be removed. They lost in federal court. This has all been decided. That's why these horses are being removed. They are not wild horses. They're feral. Under that designation, they are excess livestock that need to be removed. And yet they still want to fight it tooth and nail to the day that the last horse is gone.
1: You know, I think one of the problems, too, is, you know, a lot of people that may live in urban areas and that type of thing don't have a a really good concept of habitat capacity or land capacity. And so when you go through a national forest, you drive through BLM lands, it looks like there is unlimited capacity out there. Mm -hmm. What is the problem of just getting, allowing these horses to just roam free, no population control? I mean, I I think education is a big thing for sure in terms of, you know, uh, you know the advocates certainly are passionate and i i s- totally support their passion in to a degree as far as well are they willing to educate themselves and really looking hard and really doing a little more research into the biological capacity of what these lands can produce and what impacts those horses will have on other animals and i'm not and i'm not sure if they necessarily do that and i think they they need to little look a little broader and really really delve into things a little bit and and see some of the, th- the things for example like John's documented or many other document there's many many things documented in in uh, in literature videos and everything else or what the impacts of unregulated population of horses can have
2: I don't care about trying to change the mind of a horse advocate because it's less than 10 percent of the population I care about the uneducated masses who vote who hear True. a glib 10 second power line, or the media darlings who come and interview Simone in Netherlands because they say, Oh, they're so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then they spread these lies to the mass populations that vote. Yeah, that's the key education of the masses and the logical people will understand the biology of this and understand the complications that are presented. They'll say, yeah, these need to be reduced, not removed. Nobody wants to remove horses from our landscape, particularly wild horses. I I question what if you want to define wild, none of the Salt River horses are wild anymore because they're hand fed. They're habituated. You can come up to them and almost touch them. That's not a wild horse. A wild horse sits in Montana, and the sagebrush sees a car at about a half a mile. Boom! The band's gone. They yeah. take off. That's wild.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I want to be clear from my personal perspective. Um, I very much acknowledge the fact that these are, are not bad people. They're they're good no. people that are attempting to do something good. But but it's extremely misled, and the damage that it's causing is is what we're talking about here today. Um, but. How, then how, I mean, we've already touched on education. What is, what is the way forward? And I, I, I and just to clarify, I think we've defined that this is a small part of the population. It's a very passionate, very squeaky wheel and it's, it's getting the oil, I guess. Yep. But how do we move forward? How, how do we get this message out there? How do we educate folks in a way that's that not off putting? I, I wish everybody would watch the movie, uh, horse rich, dirt poor.
2: Mm-hmm. That, encapsulates everything that's wrong.
0: That was a great film. I'll, I'll definitely put a link in, uh, to somewhere to find that mm-hmm. in the show notes. Yep. And
2: there is, there's more and more evidence coming out. Um, the problem is is that the people who live east of the Mississippi don't get it. There are a lot of NIMBYs back there. Not in my backyard. Yeah, but it's okay out the west because that's all open out there. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, the tribal, the tribal conditions are the ones that are the most difficult to deal with. You know, when the Navajo Reservation, which sits over four states, has over, you know, 90,000 animals that nobody wants. And they're, I mean, these are sheep ranchers. Mm-hmm. They're eating their livelihood away. And our are, are horses being trucked from ri- tribal lands? My guess is yes. I've heard stories that shoot on site is common in certain reservation
0: lands. I know that. Well, I will say when I first moved Arizona, this has been ten years ago. Um, there was a movement of, and, and I, forgive me if I mess this up. It's been a long time ago, and I didn't know the details of it then. But there was wh- one of the reservations wanted to hold a hunt. Yep, am I incorrect? It was an avaho Okay. Yep, and public opinion
2: squashed it down. Yeah, I know horse meat tastes wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's good for you. It's better than beef um, biologically. Mm-hmm. But it is a moray. It's a tradition. It's an ethic. It's an image. We don't do it. Yeah. But in in Europe, in Japan, in any other country, they eat horses. Yeah. It's not it's not evil. And but it's our social distinction. Right. I'll respect that social distinction. But don't make it on everybody across the world. You can't mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. They're laughing at us in Europe when they're selling us back our. They're selling us horse meat. That we could have for virtually free at triple the value at, you know, $10 a pound to
0: mace horse logs for our zoo cats. Now, I had heard that back before the Wild Horse and Borough Protection Act, um, some of our, our older and some extinct great conservation organizations in the state of Arizona, you know, like Yuma Valley, they had their barbecue. Yes. And they would barbecue a burrow that they put down. Well, that's what I was. I I was actually not referring to you. I didn't know that. I was referring to another one that I think was like Mesa or or somewhere over there. There are a a number of organizations burrows for their they had burrito burrows
2: for their camps, for their projects. When they were going to put in waters, they would they would harvest a single burrow and they would feed over that whole weekend up to 50 volunteers. Everybody would have burrow meat. That is interesting. That is interesting. I mean, that it's before like, the turn of the century out here, I mean, Lewis and Clark survived because they had to eat their horses when they ran out of food. It's mm-hmm. documented in their journals. Yeah. Horses are a, a consumptive food base. Mm-hmm.
1: I really, it's interesting, too, because it wasn't quite the outcry for the burros as it is versus right, the horses. Right. And that's always intrigued that's me It's funny a how bit people too. draw those There's lines. There's such like, an emotional tie. Yeah. To horses, which is understandable to a degree, mm-hmm. but it's really interesting. Yeah, the
0: same as dogs and cats, and yeah. yes. and I get it. But at the same time, while I get it, like I said, I, I have a dog I, I love as much as my children. I mean, he is my boy. But I, I also I also realize that just because I'm fond of an animal, and I'm not talking the individual. If anybody touches my dog, they're, they're going to have a problem. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but other dogs, if they're out there and they're having a a, a bad impact on the environment, and in some cases they do. Yes. I don't want those dogs out
1: there. Oh. Well, I live in a situation where we're, we're near the reservation and they have considerable number of dogs. Those dogs go wild, mm-hmm. and they're having quite an impact on wildlife themselves, and we could call them do. wild dogs. Mm-hmm. And there's no emotional tie to protecting them. Right. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to the horses, it's a whole well, different story.
0: Horses are absolutely beautiful. Um, and they, they've served us well. Um, and, uh, and they still do. And, and I, I, I enjoy them as well.
2: Uh, I think they're gorgeous. I've owned them. I've, I've, I mean, I've stabled them. I've ridden them. I've been bit. I've been bucked. I've been kicked. I've been everything by a horse. And yet I still adore them but they are not the only species that we need
0: to look at. And that's the basis for all of this. I don't think you can say it any clearer than that. Um, I think that kind of sums things up for us. Um, well, I guess we'll keep fighting this fight and marching forward, and so will they. Um, but let's hope logic wins out and good science and biology. and. Uh, and, yeah, we can get a handle on this situation.
2: And if anybody's interested, keep atten- pay attention to the Apache Sick Rivers National Forest. They will be auctioning off these horses. Mm-hmm. They need to go to good homes. And there are people who will tell you how to train these animals so that they become great family pets or trail rides or something that you can utilize around your home. Don't don't make it so that only kill buyers are a, able to get them, and that's not what we want. We want them to go to good homes. Correct. But we do not want the horse advocates to buy the complete family unit, that band of sixteen horses, and then keep them there together, never to be other than warehoused. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. They're warehousing animals.
1: Interesting. Anything else, gentlemen? It's you been a long we, battle, we and it's not it? going to be over early. No, it's a it's a continual, and that's it's probably a. In my career, this is the most uh, emotionally tied conservation issue I think I've ever been associated with, and it's it's a it's a really tough tough one to deal with for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, I can say I, I certainly I, I hope this this podcast isn't too upsetting to some folks. That's certainly not my my goal. My goal is to educate, you um, and you know, we are the Arizona Wildlife Federation. We are charged with with working on what's good for wildlife all um, wildlife and and horses are not wildlife no
1: right and not, and and you know I'm certainly one of the key missions for Arizona Wildlife Federation is the habitat based mm-hmm. i mean that's the center of our our mission is certainly habitat from you know when we've got 800 plus species here in Arizona We're not just looking at elk and deer, we've mentioned them in relation to the horse issue, but I mean, certainly there's an impact on a lot of other species other than just those ones that we mentioned here today.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, I thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for talking to us about this. Pleasure, thank you for having us. Thanks, Mike, you bet. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation. Um, I hope you found it interesting and informative. I hope you understand uh, this issue a little more deeply now. I realize it's an emotionally charged topic and no matter what side of the issue that you are on, I I hope you will approach this from a pragmatic place and advocate for the removal of these animals from our public lands. And uh, yeah, with that, I hope to see you back here in two weeks for the next episode of the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. And I thank you for listening.